This isn't the BBC Light program. The Tony Hancock Appreciation Society presents Ooh, very nearly an armful, a Tony Hancock podcast. Hello and welcome to Very Nearly an Armful brought to you by the Tony Hancock Appreciation Society. On the podcast, we'll be discussing Tony's famous ATV series, The Tony Hancock Show. We'll discuss the show, its production, and what we liked about it. We rate and review the episode and just generally get our geek on about vintage comedy. We're your hosts. I'm James Griffith. I'm Martin Gibbons. I'm John Street. And I'm Tim Elms. We're spread across the south of the UK in a line from Wiltshire to Essex via Kent. And our members are spread all over the world. We have members in San Diego, California, Deloraine in Tasmania and Solingen in Germany. In this podcast, we'll be reviewing the final episode of the 1956 ITV series The Tony Hancock Show, which featured Hattie Jakes in the Death of a Duchess sketch. This was first broadcast live on the 1st of June 1956, having never been repeated. So for the first time in 66 years, it's available to watch as it was recently released on DVD in February of this year by Kaleidoscope. But first of all, chaps, what's everyone been up to this week? Proofreading and doing Tony Hancock things, yeah, and fiddling with technology. (laughs) Yeah, it's been quite a bit of proofreading this week, because we mentioned on the last podcast that uh, Hancock's 1963 ATV series was being released on DVD. Um, and we're just finalising and proofreading all of the sleeve notes. So it's been quite a good week. Enjoyed, been, been enjoying doing that. Sorry, guys, this background noise keeps stopping and starting for me, does it yeah. for you? Yeah, same yes, for me. It doesn't sound right. It's weird Spluttering a bit. normally if there's noise coming out from one of us, the box lights up, but no one's box is lighting up. Your box is lit up for me, James. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that, Tim. (laughs) (laughs) Found some time to watch a bit of TV this week, and uh, I went back to my childhood, and uh, on on BritBox, they've got some of the old kid stuff, like UFO. Do you remember UFO in the late 60s? Remember UFO? Yeah, so it's uh, Ed Bishop plays Commander Straker, who's the head of... uh, a secret organisation that's uh, trying to prevent an alien invasion of Earth, which is uh, quite... When, when, I, when I was young, I used to think it was wonderful. It's one of these um, Jerry and Sylvia Anderson programmes, and it's the first one they did that actually featured real-life acting as opposed to uh, mm. pu- puppets or marionettes, as I think they were probably called. And uh, it's got a very young Wanda Ventham in it, who uh, I always think, every time I see her in UFO, I think of her as Cassandra's mum from Only Fools and Horses. Yeah. Would you like to see the Eutronic equipment, Colonel? I think your equipment is fabulous, but uh, I am familiar with it. Really? Yes. For instance, I know that a Eutronic beam travels instantaneously. Almost instantaneously. Well, anyway, it means we'll be able to detect UFOs even when they're flying many times the speed of light in deep space. Go on. So, our moon base interceptors will have a chance to destroy them before they reach the Earth. Very good. I could tell you more over dinner. Don't you think you'd better get back to your little seat up front? <laughs> it's been ten years since we had the first confirmed UFO landing on Earth. And that was after a decade of speculation, reports, official denials, you name it. You know, Alec, when I was made commander of Shadow, I thought it was all going to happen. You've done a good job. The best. 
Well, I've tried. I've actually got a claim to fame to UFO because that that series and a lot of other series with Jerry and Silver Anderson were co-produced by a bloke called Reg Hill, whose name comes up on the credits. And back in the 70s, I actually worked with his sister. So um, I was actually... uh, I actually sat opposite her, opposite desks in, in, in the office when I was at work. And uh, I oh. remember when, when she told me that, oh, he's my sis, he's my brother, you know, I, was, I, was, I thought that was brilliant. So, Because uh, I think Reg Hill did, thun- he did Thunderbirds. So yeah, he, did, he, did, he, he worked with them on lots of stuff. So uh, we, we was talking the other couple of podcasts ago about tenuous links. So that's my tenuous link to the yeah. uh, to UFO and stuff. It has a tenuous link to cabin pressure as well, because Wanda Ventham is Benedict Cumberpatch's mum. Oh, right, right. She played his mum in Sherlock as well. Both these parents are actors, so uh, quite random. And, and there's also a link to Hancock's Half Hour, because in the episode I watched the other night, mm. featured Colin Gordon, oh, who wow. we sp- we've spoken about on several times, because he's been in Hancock, he's been in Steptoe, and as we've often mentioned on here, he's also in The Prisoner. So, uh, yes. yeah. She was also in uh, Only Fools and Horses, where she played Rodney Trotter's mother-in-law, wasn't she? Yes, Cassandra, Cassandra's mum, wasn't oh. she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and she's been possessed in Doctor Who, I think, in Image of the Fendal back in the seventies. <laughs> yeah, everyone's been all in Doctor Who, as we've established. It always leads back that way. <laughs> all roads lead back to Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> They've got quite a few of those um, old Jerry and Sylvia Anderson programs on on BritBox. They've got. Uh, They've got Thunderbirds and Stingray, and I, I think they've even got Supercar, which is a very early one, which when you look at it now, you, you think, crikey, you know, it, it's, it's, it's very uh, dated. It's like watching the early Doctor Who's, you know. But uh, I've got a vivid memory of being seven years old, absolutely loving Supercar, and it was my favourite programme. That was great. So, uh, have they got Fireball yeah. on there as well? Fireball XL5? Never heard of Supercar. I can't. Never? No. I'll have to check whether Fireball's on there. I used to like Joe 90. Joe 90, uh, Stingray yes. is a bit of a Friday yeah. night's uh, favourite for me. I used to like the theme music to Joe. In fact, I've got the theme music to Joe 90 on my playlist because it became a, a Northern Soul uh, favourite, didn't it, I think? So, uh, Stingray's yeah. theme tune was absolutely fantastic, though. It's got that sort of two-tone where it uh, goes into almost like a... Well, I'm not going to sing it, by the way. Don't get excited. It's a marina, aquamaria. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I did sing it. <laughs> For me, it was always Captain Scarlet. Boom, 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 boom. Yes. Oh, yeah, the Mr. Ons. Yeah. The Mr. Ons. Yeah. 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 yeah, and and all the villains, everyone in it was named after a colour, weren't they? Yes. Wasn't it Captain Scarlet and oh, I can't Captain remember the Scarlet others. Scarlet and Captain Green and yes, Colonel yeah. White and all of that lot. Yeah. <laughs> Colonel White. Very unimaginative. And then, of course, the one who was taken over by the Mistrons was presumably um, Cap- Captain, Captain Black. Black. Was it Captain yeah. Black? Yeah. I'm not sure. It's definitely this Black. This is the voice of the Mistrons. <laughs> yeah, all of that. Very cheesy. Great fun. Very interesting. Yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. Yeah, loved all that. Mm. See, anything I watched recently was. Um, uh, was I, I watched a thing on Netflix, which was uh, Monty Python, The Meaning of Live, uh, which was a little documentary about when they did their 2014 reunion tour, which I watched a week or so back. It kept me entertained and it sort of took me back to going to see it when I saw it some seven, eight years ago now. Yeah, I didn't get to see it. I saw the recording. It's a great show. I have never stopped being on stage. You see, I've continued to be stuck at being a comedian. It was sad and pathetic. 
laughter is the fuel for the pythons. Without laughter, they die. Sad, horrible old men in their lonely mansions. When you start, you go out and have every audience. You don't know if they're going to hate you or not. That's why comedians talk about dying. There are religions, there are companies which are desperately trying to control what we are, what we think. And we're just saying, up yours. It is fun to be together. We do have a good time when we, when we finally get together. But it's just such a nightmare getting everybody together. So my brother went to see that, I think. So I went, yeah. to, went to see what? A live show? Uh, Monty Python. The Monty Python, yeah. yeah, back in 2014. Oh, what, when they got back together again? Yeah, he managed to get tickets. Mm, yeah, yeah, to the one-off. Fantastic. Mm. Rather excitingly, this latest episode, Hancock Killer Police, hit the top five of the UK podcast charts. Brilliant. Fantastic. Which is great. And we've been pretty consistent. Uh, I think we hit the top 50 in uh, America as well. And in various places all over the world, sort of random, like Zimbabwe... Uh, Croatia, we we had a bit of a run up the charts. I don't understand why. That's fantastic news. You can never really, you can never really predict which way it's going to go. Sometimes you think, oh, we're doing really well in Haiti this week, <laughs> and then you check a week later and you're out. But uh, yeah. Yeah. I bet we're no longer. I bet we're no longer number one in Thailand though. No, uh, we're not even in the charts in Thailand now. It's uh, there's just so no rhyme or reason for it. Must be those twelve angry men, men who tuned in to listen to the first episode all day. Yeah. <laughs> We've got a couple of members in Thailand, so I shall email them and ask them to listen. <laughs> yeah, continuously, and that'd be great. <laughs> Give it a listen, boost our ratings. Get us back yeah. to number one. Yeah, we should make some sort of ad campaign for that. Do we know how many downloads have been, James? You said before that we were approaching... Yeah, a... we, are, we are about 250 away from 20,000, so sure. any day Brilliant. now. Any day now. It will be in the next couple of days, I imagine. By the time this comes out, we would have popped the um, popped the party poppers and uh, we would have celebrated. Excellent. I'm sure we will. That's brilliant. Yeah. Before this last one that we did before this gets released, we would have we would have hit it easily. So and then yeah, I mean we've had to, in terms of correspondence, it's only we're actually recording this a little bit earlier than we normally would. So I haven't had that much correspondence, but we have had lots of positive feedback on uh, Twelve Angry Men. I think it's proven to be a really popular episode. I think people love that episode people love talking about it there's all sorts of different quotes i think as we sort of covered um so yeah it's been um it's been a good week been a nice week reading back reading all the feedback uh, from these from the tweets and emails etc yeah we had a, quite a, f- a few nice emails i the one thing i saw on uh, facebook was a chap sort of said oh so when you're doing uh the last and like hancocks then which we keep keep occasionally talking mm-hmm. about we'll have to plan that one in for a future series i mean there's just so many we could do isn't there Mm. God knows how long we're going to go on with this for. Well, exactly, yeah. I think by the time we get to the end, we can start at the beginning again, can't we? <laughs> <laughs> we'll all be here on Zoom when we're 90. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's when we start our Captain Scarlet podcast. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I had a couple of nice treats back. Um, Richard Burroughs in Del Mar, California, is enjoying the podcast. And uh, our good friend William Callahan, who's one of our members, and uh, he always takes part in the quiz and stuff. Now, William treated himself to one of our mugs at Christmas, so uh, I hope he's listening to this, uh, drinking a cup of tea out of his official Tony Hancock mug. And Darren Bryant was delighted to be mentioned in the uh, uh, podcast about his uh, granddad selling Tony's Mama Hoover. 
So he was. Uh, it's a great story, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it is. Yeah, not much else has happened. So I've had a couple of a couple of nice emails as well, particularly around the Hancock in the police saying, um, you know, what a fantastic episode it, it is, and uh, yeah, it's uh, certainly I think it's going to be a, a very popular one. Yeah. I exchanged emails today with a, a new member we've got called Titus Cotton, and uh, he was saying he, he used to be a member of the society back in the eighties and stuff. So uh, he's come back after quite a bit of a gap, but uh, we welcome him back anyway. But he was saying that um, when he used to listen to Hancock in the old days, he didn't know what Bill Kerr looked like. And, of course, this is in pre-internet days and pre-social media days, so it's quite understandable, really. So he sort of conjured up an image in his mind of what Bill Kerr looked like, and he sort of imagined him as a bit like Sid Little. And I, 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 can, I can see why he thought that, but uh, he, he wonders when the, whether any other listeners used to do that sort of thing. Yeah, me. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, absolutely. In uh, in the eighties, like I knew what Teddy Hancock looked like. I knew what Sid James looked. Like. I knew what Hattie Jakes looked like, but never had an idea what Bill Kerr looked like as, as a eight or nine year old. You didn't have access. There was no internet then. No. Um, so yeah. yeah, I didn't didn't either. What did I think he looked like? So how did you imagine him then? Um, I almost imagined him quite a tubby character for some reason. Mm. Almost mm. like a dockyard worker. I don't know why. Not that all dockyard workers are tubby, but just quite muscular, quite short. Yeah. And I don't know why. I could always imagine him as something, you know, before I knew what he looked like, I suppose as a bit of a sort of a Stan Laurel type character, because that's very much the type of character he, he plays, isn't it? Um, Later on he did, yeah. 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 Three years can wreak havoc on a man of your age. <laughs> Strike while you've still got some hair, that's my motto. <laughs> But what's quite interesting is that when Hancock's Half Hour first moved to television, I seem to remember Gordon Simpson saying that one of the issues was that no one knew what Hancock looked like then. Because although obviously his picture appeared in newspapers occasionally, it wasn't like it is today. You don't get this sort of mass coverage. And it was quite, quite easy for a radio star not to be well known visually. But they said at the time that uh, one of the things was that... Um, when they did see Hancock on TV for the first time, everyone said, oh, that's, that's the character we imagined when, when we uh, listened to the radio because mm. his, his face matched the voice and matched the character. But, uh, yeah, I, I guess that's been a thing over the years. I expect even now sometimes you listen to the radio, you don't always know what the actors or presenters look like, do you? You don't sort of think about it. No. You just conjure up an image in your mind, don't you? Mm. You do. But I, I can't remember how i thought of bill all those years ago i can't remember i can't remember what i thought because like like you i mean i knew what kenneth williams and hancock and hattie and sid looked like but i probably wouldn't have known bill at the time but yeah no i can't remember yeah. no see a friend of mine at work julia she um who i used to work with she got into the radio shows of hancock's half hour and quite enjoyed listening to them and I suggested she watch one of the TV episodes or something. And she was like, yeah, he's, he's not look, he doesn't look how I imagined. I imagined him as much fatter. He doesn't look fat enough in the TV series. <laughs> I suppose in the radio series, they do refer to his weight quite a lot, don't they? So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> George mm. Bernard Shaw without a beard. He wasn't that heavy, actually, in those days, was he? Not at the start. And um, I, I think the thing with Hancock was that he had put on weight after he got married because when he was first around on, on the radio circuit in the late 40s, 
and all the things he did at that time, he was exceptionally skinny. And the story goes that it's when he married Sicily and she was a great cook and all that. The story goes that he put on weight after he got married, you know, living a very comfortable and, and, and happy life, as it were. But I, I don't think he, although they called him Tub and, and all the other words in the radio series, I, I don't think he was, you know, particularly big, was he? And then he was, you know, a little bit overweight, perhaps, but uh, not massively so. A bit overstated, I think. You know, Harry Seacombe, no. Absolutely. Should we talk about recent Hancock news? I think yes. we should. Let's have some Hancock headlines. <laughs> so, last podcast we mentioned that the ATV series, and I've already mentioned it in this podcast, the 1963 ATV series is out on DVD. That release date is on the 15th of July, been released by Kaleidoscope. There should be some extras on the disc. We don't know what those will be yet. And it's www.tvbrain.info will get you to the shop. So that's the ATV series out on the 15th of July. And in brand new hot off the press news, there will be a new Hancock book published on the 18th of August, which was slightly earlier than I think we were expecting, Tim. Just a bit. <laughs> 18th of August. It's called Tony Hancock Inside His Life in Words and Pictures. It's written by Lucy Hancock and Tim and myself and is a delve into the archives held by the Hancock family, by Lucy Hancock and Roger Hancock Limited, and all of the wonderful archives that uh, that Roger built up over the years, correspondence, photos, all neatly filed, uh, neatly filed away. And we've added in some of the archives from the Tony Hancock Appreciation Society. So it's quite a, a sizable book, and it is a real look into Hancock's life, as I say, through all these photos and, doc- and documents and contracts and all sorts of things, um, with some accompanying text to put it all in, put it all into context. And one of the things we've done as well is add a chronology of everything that Hancock did on stage and radio and TV in date order. So people who've got the uh, Bible for Hancock fans, which is the uh, Roger Wilmot's book, uh, Tony Hancock Artiste, will know that all the uh, dates of the various shows and broadcasts and stuff were in there. But that book was written 45 years ago, and uh, a lot of information has come to light since then. And of course, when Roger wrote that, he did some painstaking research to get all that information together, but he didn't have the ability, the the, uh, internet as, as we do today. And he couldn't find programs on eBay like we do today. So just by scouring the internet and looking at things for sale on eBay, we've been able to put together a much bigger picture of, of the things that he did and also include some material that one of our former TAS colleagues, Jeff Hammond, was it? Yes, that's right. Jeff, Jeff Hammond, some years ago, put together an update of the theatre program. So we've, uh, we've taken that on board as well. So what we have now is the most up-to-date so far chronology of every piece of work that Hancock did. And it looks quite impressive, actually, when you see it all laid out and all the things that he did. He, he had an incredibly busy career going from one stage show to another, to a broadcast, to a radio, to a TV. And it's, it's, it's quite impressive when you go through it. And it, particularly in those two or three years just before Hancock's half hour, debuted on the radio those were the particularly yeah, busy yeah. times with um concurrent radio series happy go lucky and 
uh, educating archery and as you say stage shows in fact stage shows of educating archery as well yeah it's it was an incredibly busy time um so anyway that is out on the 18th of august and well worth a look even if we say so <laughs> if, no, if nothing else it's uh, some 750 pages that'll make an excellent doorstop but i'm sure doorstop entertaining than that or you <laughs> might be able to reach you might be able to reach lady don't fall back was on the top shelf yeah. standing on it. someone on twitter suggested that yesterday um sta- standing on it to get to lady don't fall back was absolutely brilliant yes absolutely yeah just the right size yeah yeah fantastic yeah libraries all around the country will be buying it and putting it on the floor next to their shelves i'm sure indeed now just to put them on the floor please that's it yes. on the floor yes yeah give me a give me a lift up there yeah back, back. give us a leg hoist us up a bit up back ah 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 that's the little beauty i'm after lady don't fall backwards <laughs> And uh, for listeners who haven't heard our previous podcast, there's some upcoming events. There is The Lad Himself, which is on at the Gatehouse Highgate Village in London, runs from the 20th of April to the 1st of May. And it's played by Roy Smiles, uh, as that's on, as I say, at the Gatehouse. And then on the 23rd of April, Riverside Studios to celebrate 100th anniversary of the BBC and 65 years of Riverside Studios are showing three Hancock Self Hour episodes and uh, that's Riverside Studios on 23rd of April and I think it starts at two o'clock um, and Tim and I will be there to introduce the uh, the showing and I believe there may be questions and answers but I might run out before that starts so those are the two yeah the the, the next two events coming up but everyone keeps freezing is it just me no people are free yeah it's not it's not quite as smooth as it usually no, is it just come up on my screen your internet connection is not stable you're unstable, Tim. I always knew. I yeah. always knew. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose we'll move on to our main subject of the Tony Hancock show, also known as uh, Death of a Duchess for the, the main body sketch that's part of it. So uh, what did you all think of this one, guys? Something a bit different, eh? Yeah, this is, this is, it is definitely a, a different, um, a different sort of show to the ones that we're normally reviewing. And the whole series is a series of sketches, although this last show is one short sketch at the beginning and then uh, the, the rest of the show dedicated to the, to the main sketch. But it really does showcase Tony's physical side to his comedy. So I think it's a lot more akin to his stage act. And it's probably just worth mentioning for listeners that aren't familiar. This series went out in 1956 and it was live and predates all of the Hancock's Half Hour on television. But it's a series produced by Jack Hilton, and Hilton was, um, Hancock was under contract to Hilton for his stage shows. And Hilton got the uh, the rights to a television show with Hancock um, ahead of the BBC starting Hancock's Half Hour. Uh, so the first Hancock's Half Hour on BBC was a couple of months after this series finished. Mm. And the episode we're looking at today is the last one of the series. It'd be interesting to see what others think of it as well. It's quite interesting to watch. Well, it's very interesting to watch, but um, obviously Han- Hancock comes across as very different. First thing that strikes me when I watch it is how young Hancock looks. Mm. I mean, there's not there's not that amount of time between this and the first series of the TV Hancock's half hour, but mind you, we they're all lost, so we, we don't see them. But he, he does look particularly young. And the other thing, of course, is that it's the writing, isn't it? I mean, it's... Sykes's writing is is so different to Gordon Simpson. I th- I think it was 
you can tell it's written not only in a sketch format, but more like mm. a theatrical format. And television was, of course, in its infancy then, particularly comedy on television. And it's, it looked like the sort of knockabout thing you might see on a stage as, as opposed to television, which was, I thought mm. was interesting. I think it's, having watched it, holding my hands up three times a day for the first time, it does feel very forward-thinking. It sort of breaks out fourth wall. And yeah. yeah. I don't compare it to anything now, but it's, it's got that Mrs. Brown's boys feel about it in terms of how the, the cameraman's in shot and, you know, it's, mm. it does sort of break that fourth wall. A genuine television camera. <laughs> Pictures in your own home. Televise the wife in the early morning. Let us see what you have to put up with. <laughs> the lads, they're on it as well. They're part of the deal, part of the set. Oh, don't point it at me. I've been loaded. I'll steam your lens up. The other week we mentioned Hancock's 43 Minutes, and I think I said then that it looks a bit like Morgan Wise. And, and I think this, you know, as you say, Mrs Brown's Boys, or indeed Morgan Wise, isn't it? It's another, it oh. seems another play that I wrote type stuff. And they're doing this um, Inspector Parrot. Yeah, it's like a yeah. repertory theatre thing, isn't it, gone wrong? Mm. Mr Hancock would like to conclude his short repertory season here with a drama by Mr Hancock himself. He will play the starring role, that of the amazing French detective Hercules Parrot. I'm too sharp for you, mon ami. When I saw you, Mr Parrot, I'm afraid I lost my head. Yeah, Hercules Parrot, the great Belgian detective. And, and it's even like the Morecambe and Wise where you've got the credits the spoof credits at the yes. beginning of the sketch yeah. Yeah. with Tony Hancock playing, I don't know how many different roles it says he's playing. Of course yes. he isn't. Yes. But you could imagine Eric Morecambe doing that, couldn't you? Exactly yeah. the same yeah. thing, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And there's lots of talking to camera as well, rather than, you know, just doing the, the, the sketch mm. itself. Again, very similar to the Morecambe Wise piece, the show that I wrote, or the play that I wrote. Yeah, there are lots of uh, fluffs where, where it was done live. Not so much fluffs, but you, it's just an, an obviously live performance. Yeah. But whereas, again, that's similar to Morgan Wise, when they have these little asides to each other, but the Morgan Wise asides, every one of them were scripted, whereas um, the, these are, I don't know, real fluffs or whatever, and you can tell they're kind of struggling to get through it without it all going wrong. I mean, from, from all reports, you know, they, they did say at the time that these shows were quite under-rehearsed. And what was it? June Whitfield made a comment at what, somewhere that, uh, you know, a successful show in those days was one where the set didn't fall down or where, where a stagehand didn't appear in front of the camera and things like that. You know, it's, it was that sort of atmosphere. I think it's got, it harks, it, it reminds me a lot of the Yishim Drama Festival. Yeah. Harold, where are you? Underneath the ruddy curtain, get it off me. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> the end up and you crawl out. I can't see. Where are you? Well, stop thrashing about. I'll thrash you about when I get out. <laughs> Don't you talk to me like that. I shall report you to the union. It's not my fault the curtain fell on you. Well, get on with it. We can't. He's got caught under the curtain. And now enter the hero. Four minutes too early to help drag the curtain. <laughs> his it just feels like they're just up there having fun, to be honest. It, like I said, it doesn't feel like a serious programme at all. Oh, well, no. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of mugging to camera, isn't there? I mean, there's that wonderful ad-libbing bit where he, he does a Mr. Punch over the side of the yeah. auctioneer's stand, yeah. for want of a better way of putting it, which is just so frenetic and full of life and beans, isn't it? Oh, ring a Oh, 
makes a change. <laughs> I wish I hadn't done that now. There won't be a minute. Hang on, hang on. Punch and Judy, in case you're right. It reminds me a bit of whose li- who's line is it anyway? And they've just given quite a lot of props to use. Yeah. And make a story, you know. it's. I found it quite difficult to watch, to be honest. I think mm. It's quite, yeah. It, it is very different. In fact, there is a whose line is um, in one of the sketches in one of the earlier shows in the series. Um, there's a little spoof of that in a, in a courtroom sketch. Mm. Where they bring on a witness and 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 then the the dialogue is all about you know guessing what her what her job is. Once more, back to the court. Well, Miss Lump, are you salaried? Yes. Do you work indoors? Yes. Do you give a service? <laughs> Something to do with machinery? Oh no no, I think definitely no. Oh, I'm sorry. Your witness, Mr. Hancock. I must warn you again that I will not tolerate this unorthodox questioning of the witness, nor these attempts to gain sympathy for your client. I'm sorry, my lad. Tell me, Miss Lump, on the night of the 24th of January, did you meet the defendant? But the, 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 my favourite of the fluffs is when they're doing the auction and off camera, there's a bid for 60 quid, but it comes in at the wrong point. And Hancock says, hang on a minute. And he takes... Oh, the, yes. Yeah. And he takes the bid for 55 yeah. pounds on the phone. And then he has to prompt the lady to then say the right bid for 60 and, um, afterwards. Yes, here it is, ladies and gentlemen. Do I hear 50 pounds? Hello? 55 pounds. 55 pounds. Hang on, madam. 55 pounds I got here. Say it again, dear. Well done. 60 pounds! Um, that, was a, that was a great um, great little ad-lib there from, from Tony. It was, wasn't it? And I mean, uh, the whole kind of auctioning off the props and, uh, and of course, auctioning off the dancing girls in the opening. He's like, uh, get down to my van, dear. Um, you wouldn't have that in a sketch show now, I don't think. But it, it was quite funny <laughs> in the area in which it was made. Right, we live on lot 17. Here we are. There they are. Marvellous, isn't it? All house trained. They don't eat much. Work hard. Look at the way they move. Isn't that lovely? Go on, Deirdre, move about a bit. Notice the way her hips go anti-clockwise to her legs. And the foot going in front of the other and the other foot going in front of the other. That's known as walking. Very good, dear. Come round here. There we are, up the stairs. Just turn round a little bit. That's it. That's the neck. Just below the head, directly below the head. The two fashionable shoulders. Yes, I think we'll have that right. <laughs> Down to my van, dear. <laughs> so um, that, that's uh, quite different. Yeah, the dancing girls and Hancock come buying them all to, as you say, send down to his, his van. It was uh, very, very definitely risque and not something you'd see in Hancock's half hour. Yeah, it's quite a lot of that. Definitely, definitely not Golden Simpson, no. No, absolutely. Mm. But in the same way as you've got the, the gardener, in the death of a duchess played by clive dunn who comes in as this really old man and uh, hancock says well you know who are you working for before well lord and lady chatterley tell me before you work here where did you work before here lord chatterley sir <laughs> did you uh, did you have any references didn't get one from him but i got <laughs> Very good one from her ladyship. How old are you? He's there as this old man. How old are you? 28. 28. 28. 28. Yeah. 
That's great. He's on top form, isn't he, Clive Dunning? Yeah, he's uh, playing his his usual kind of doddery old man. But I quite like the opening where they're all playing the different roles and he's dressed up as the Duchess. And then in comes Hattie as as the groundsman uh, in his place, which is just quite fun. I want to play this part. Pardon? I want to play the part of the Duchess. Duchess? Waitress, yes, but Duchess, I can't see. Well, give us a try. I'm not having that. You can't play... I don't mind you playing the Duchess when in when she's dead, but I can't have you playing the Duchess when in flashback, when I'm the Duke. After our wedding, taking all the joy out of it for me. <laughs> One scene I was looking forward to with Miss Whitfield. Uh, it very much breaks the fourth wall, as you say, and uh, quite, quite a lot different as a lead-in to the main sketch. You mentioned Clive Dunn playing his usual old man, but wasn't this where he started doing that? I'm not sure where he might have done it before, because there wasn't much on the way of TV comedy. Perhaps he did it on the stage, I don't know. But I haven't. I think this might have been sort of where he first started doing it. I know he complained in later life that he, he always got to play the old man part. and, and... He, he does play an incredibly good old man, though. Oh, he? absolutely. Terrific, isn't he? Absolutely yeah, terrific. Yeah. I mean, he was absolutely gifted at doing that. Mm. I mean, he plays an old man in, in a couple of the episodes of this series. So, yeah, it might well be that that was his... His first, his first try at doing the doing the part. Mm. Mm. It could well be. Um, he does a lovely one where he comes in as a lovely library sketch earlier in the series. And he comes in as a as, as an mm. old man um, uh, in, in that one as well. So it's it's um yeah it's it's good to see. And as you say, it was his real forte. Because he was in six of these, wasn't he, Clive Dunn? Did I see somewhere? He was in twelve in series one and two, I think, from what I was reading today. Yeah, oh, right. So the six, the I think he's in every episode of the first series. Right, the only right. series that exists, of course, because the second yeah. series went out live and was not telerecorded, according to all the records that we've located thus far. Yes, that's right. Yeah, the writing is quite interesting because he plays in the sketch, he's playing Hercules Parrot, who's investigating a murder of which he's, you know, playing another role as well. Ah, a clue the police have missed. <laughs> Those fools at the surete. Monsieur... Where was the body when you first saw it? Behind the settee. Strange, Hein. <laughs> How did you know it was behind the settee? I saw it there. Uh-huh. And what were you doing behind the settee? I always go there on my day off. <laughs> you are droll, my friend. And Hercules Parrot. That joke was reused by Galton Simpson in a lost TV Hancock's Half Hour, which was The Great Detective, which also had Hattie Jakes in it. Oh, right. So that's quite an interesting one. I noticed as well that this is written by Eric Sykes and Henry Federer. Um, I had an IMDb search of Henry Federer. It seems he was a set designer or something. He did do some writing and stuff and worked with people like Spike Milligan and A Son Called Fred and things like that. But, yeah, I do wonder about the co-writing credit. Do we know how much of this was ad-libbed? Because there's an awful lot that things like that's been done on the hoof. So, for example, um, after the commercials, when this bizarre, they 
enjoy the commercials. See you after the break, kind of thing. Impossible, you know. Absolutely impossible. Trying to act with them is like trying to play cricket with a cloth bat. Well, I'm going to have a bit of a kip between now and the second half, so uh, I hope you enjoy the commercial. And Hancock's character knocks on the door, and uh, they open the door, and then he closes the door again, and he, then he puts a false beard on, and then he opens it again. It just felt like that's a bit of an ad lib thing, and they sort of said snap. Yeah. Unfortunately, we don't have any of the scripts of this first series. I, well, the, no, we might have one. We might have one, but we haven't got the script for this episode. Um, so we won't know. My understanding is that Hancock didn't like the script to be changed and he liked to follow this, a set script. But having said that, I, I think there was often occasions when they, when they deviated for whatever reason. It's like in uh, Airfield at the Bottom of the Garden, you know, they... He had to uh, not so much ad lib as get out of get out of a situation, and I, I think he was qu- he was quite good at doing that because in a live situation you haven't got a lot of choice really. Yeah, oh, I wonder if the script ran slightly short and they padded it with extra bits of mugging to camera and stuff like that because that was the frenetic mm. energy that the show mm. seemed to project. I think in all of the episodes it, it has that sort of talking direct to the viewer. Uh, element to it which you don't see in a typical Hancock sitcom uh, but you do see in this sort of sketch style. Well I hope you enjoyed the story I mean you know I suppose Agatha Christie will have it next week but there we are you see the butler could have done it, the gardener could have done it or the duke could have done it but then that nice little twist at the end. It's a bit like a pantomime isn't it? It is yeah exactly mm. I was thinking that earlier. Yeah I wonder if a lot of it came up in rehearsal you know they, they rehearsed it and it was under running and they just did extra things or he and John Veer may have worked out some of those bits with the, the false beards, perhaps. But interesting, eh? It just feels it feels so chaotic that I almost couldn't enjoy it. Yeah, it was. It, I mean, it is very, very frenetic. I know we talked about Hancock in the Pace being a fast-paced episode, but I think this one is even faster. Uh, and as you say, it, it has that feel of a bit of chaos and we've just got through to the end by the skin of our uh, teeth type of feel to it. Mm. A bit like a fast pace. Well, it's a bit like it was almost like a, a, a sort of a stage farce, wasn't it? Oh yeah, very much so. When when you've got some um, Hancock desperately working at how to get rid of the Duchess. Yeah, when he measures her up for the coffin and everything. I th- or when he measures digging that- digging the grave in the garden. That's fantastic. Yeah, I enjoyed that bit. I thought yeah, it was I did. Good. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. The many times he's great in the garden. Digging a great big hole. Oh, Rupert, digging holes in the lawn. Oh, I do hope he isn't going to take up golf. Uh, I ain't never seen a golf hole six foot three by three foot across. <laughs> oh, well, perhaps he's very bad at putting. <laughs> oh, Rupert, I've been unfair to you. Perhaps you, you need a new dress. Yes. <laughs> Can't tell enough. <laughs> I can't believe it. Was he talking to me, do you think? Well, I don't hardly think he'd buy me a new dress. <laughs> then he shoots and misses, walks her along the edge of the cliff, and every time she walks back onto the stage and has survived. It went off by mistake. I was cleaning it and it went off. That gun can't go off accidentally. Ain't no bullets in it. Well, I put some in. They were in my pocket. They were making a hole. It, it can't go off on its own. <laughs> Can't shoot straight either, can it? <laughs> Help, my love! There was a loud bang. I think I must have fainted. Oh, oh the TNT on the headphones was brilliant. And the whole reason he's trying to kill her is because she beat him at Monopoly and Ludo. <laughs> what about the Ludo? Why did I have to win that game of Monopoly? 
Ever since, Rupert has hardly spoken a civil word to me. Takes his meals in his own room. When he talks to the servants, he refers to me as that lady there. It's so degrading. Makes one feel so small. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Yeah, don't worry. Don't. Don't worry about the monopoly. It was the Ludo that did it. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, lot of passion in his voice there, isn't there? And he comes in his sort of blonde Harpo Marx wig as mm. the, the Duke or whatever. His Grace says he had forgotten that incident. Oh, yes, yes, Hoopshot. Then, Rupert, why are you angry? What about the Ludo? <laughs> Four counters home and I hadn't even thrown a thick. I can see it all now, a ghastly dream. Absolutely ghastly. Oh, come back. Come back. Only for my And, you know, playing a character, in, he's investigating his own murder. So there's a lot of quick costume changes that you notice are covered by someone talking to camera and the picture going wobbly. The Duke, Rupert Furtwangle, married the Duchess on a Friday. Yes, a Friday, six years ago. I remember all went well. Until a Tuesday, one year later, the Duchess was having her usual cup of tea in... He makes a joke at a costume change because he stands up, doesn't he, to show that he's got the one costume on underneath the other. Tennis yes. shorts over under hmm. the uh, Sherlock Holmes jacket, yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah, he walks out behind the sofa and then, all oh, steps back very quickly. But as you say, making a point, he's wearing the... Yeah. Wearing the wrong trousers. <laughs> exactly. Where was June Whitfield in this episode? On the honeymoon. Okay, she got off yeah. on honeymoon. So if you watch episode five of the series, it spends the entire episode with June annoying Hancock, saying, you're not going to be in the show next week. You're not going to be in the show next week. At one point, he puts a gag on her. Tony, I'm terribly sorry. Honestly, I didn't think it would do any harm. Any harm? They're all sitting there waiting to see how I'm going to get out of it alive. You turn around, look and... Straight in the face and tell them it's only a sketch. Well, I thought the viewers might be worried about you. But that's the whole point, they say. There's old Marshall Hancock in the spot. <laughs> Poor Tony. <laughs> Never mind. As though we're here, we better take a few of you. Oh, Can yes, I... please, yes. Now, why don't you come home with me? I There's a little corner of the kitchen and I've never been photographed there <laughs> <laughs> One thing is certain. We shan't have Miss Whitfield with us next week. And it's all setting it up because episode five is going to be the last one. So the first, the first five episodes have got June in, and June has a singing spot in each of those episodes. So this is the first episode in the series, the only one that doesn't have a, a singing spot at all. And I think pointed the way to the second series, which is supposed to be more single situation based. Um, I think that's the direction Hancock wanted to take it in. Although how successful that was, we really don't know. Yeah. I'd say, unfortunately, all of that second series is lost. Some of the second series ended up being written by Gordon Simpson, wasn't it? Yeah, the last... Well, we know it was episode five and six were written by Gordon and Simpson, uncredited, yeah. because the series wasn't going very well. And the BBC allowed Gordon and Simpson to write it because Ray and Alan were under sole contract to the BBC. Mm. But they allowed them to, to write it because they didn't want a poor ATV series to damage Hancock's half hour on the BBC. So they wrote the last two... We know that Eric Sykes wrote one and two. He might have written episode three as well, but there's, we believe that one, at least one of the episodes, Hancock sort of did most of it was his stage act. So, you know, the, the, the second series was 
potentially even more chaotic than this one was. Yeah. And they, you know, really did get through to the end of that one by the skin of their teeth. Yeah, because I think the script either wasn't good enough, he didn't think it was good enough, or they just it wasn't ready. So there was a whole episode, apparently, according to the many biographies, that he he had lived his way through. And I think that must have been the reason that Golden Simpson were then drafted in, presumably. Yeah. But uh, but it, you know, the 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 fact that a lot of it's got that frenetic energy does help. We mentioned Clive Dunn. There's also, of course, uh, John Veer in this, isn't there? Um, and he's another regular who many Hancock fans will know because, according to one book I've got, he appeared in 23 episodes of the TV version of Hancock's Half Hour. Um, I haven't checked, but that sounds probably about right. Blimey. And he was also in a, one radio episode as well. So, yeah, he was and, and also in, in seven of these Tony Hancock shows. So... He, he was with Tony sort of right the way through these sort of things. And he was in the Hancock's 43 Minutes, which we mentioned in the last podcast as well, doing a bit of sketch comedy with, uh, with Hancock. And who's going to stop me? I am. Oh, you are. <laughs> he's got courage, I grant you. I don't think he quite knows who he's jousting with. You're not going to auction that camera. I'm not. I see. All right. I've uh, got to treat you a little lesson then. I've had trouble with you before, your sort of type, in the Cubs and that. I wonder if this was the first time they worked together this particular series because you know he's in every episode old John Veer and um, there's some lovely moments I particularly mm. like when uh Hattie's uh hoop shaft you know I need a, I need a reflection he rubs his bold head and she looks at his, her reflection in these bold bonds which I quite like yeah that's that's a great little visual gag yeah stands yeah. out doesn't yeah. it yeah oh my hair must look a mess hoop shaft I must be beautiful for his return Oh, thank you, Hoopshaw. You're great. <laughs> and it was because of this episode, we think, that Gordon Simpson decided to get Hattie into the radio series of Hancock's Half Hour, mm. which uh, was broadcast later the same year. Hattie Jakes is absolutely phenomenal in this. I think she's the standout yeah. performer Yeah, um, in this whole episode. It's quite interesting that when, when she enters the, the scene, she gets a round of applause from the audience just for walking on. So that just yeah. shows you the you know, how she was regarded in those days as um, you yes. know, a big name in entertainment. The esteem she was held in, yeah. She Indeed. was a big name, you know, she'd been doing stuff since the mid-40s, so you yeah. know, it's ten, yeah. 10 years in the business by this yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's right, because she was in she was in Itmar, wasn't she, during the... That's right, yeah. During the war. She was. Oh, dear, here's Sophie Tuckshop. I better nail the case to the counter. Oh, hello. It's me. Yes. You haven't forgotten about tonight, have you? Well, I'm sorry, Sophie, but... Oh, yeah. those hot dogs do look lovely. May I have one? Yes, you may, but uh, where are you going to hide it? In your berry? <laughs> oh, you are naughty. I said in your berry. Oh. <laughs> she bounced off Hancock perfectly, and uh, what I thought was interesting was that although she was playing his wife, the Duchess, in that little playlet, it wasn't in any way a, a romantic thing it was she was um i think what i might have said on these podcasts before is is the reason that that hattie and hancock did so well on hancock's half hour was that she wasn't the love interest in the same way that andre and moira had been and she was his foil she was his secretary and she could shout at him she could fight him she could argue with him and all those sorts of things and romance didn't get in the way but i think in in this episode it comes across as the same. I mean, obviously, obviously they're playing a Duke and Duchess, but um, he's trying to kill her, and uh, there's clearly no love lost between them. So I think not only was it a good idea that 
Gordon Simpson to say, yes, let's get happy in the radio show. But what they might have done is, is thought, well, actually, that, that's the secret to uh, having a female character in Hard Hancock's Half Hour somewhere who's a foil to him rather than someone who's romantically entwined. Mm. Indeed, yeah. And I mean, June Whitfield's character was quite similar, but I think he, the Cat Hancock character possibly lusted after a bit more in that series than he would after Hattie, yeah. who was this sort mm. of, mm. um, I, what's the, quite the word, but she just has no idea that he's trying to kill her and she's sort of, not bewildered, but she, she's completely, you know, it goes over her head uh, entirely throughout all of that scene. She's just pleased. Yeah, I mean, she, because he's sort of showing an interest in her and of course the interest is because he's working out how big to dig the grave uh, yeah. she, she just takes it that the, you know he's he's finally come round and he's now interested in her again so it's a, yeah, it's a very a very naive duchess but um but but brilliant but brilliantly portrayed by hassie come let us to the weir for a swim don't go down the weir sir there's current enough there to drown a horse oh penelope will be all right i shall be on the bank Oh, yeah. No, thank you, Rupert. I don't feel like swimming today. Oh. Well, what about a walk along the edge of the cliff, then? Oh, Rupert, I would love that. Oh, oh. I'd love. Rupert, really. Oh, you're mad. <laughs> so, so we've got Hattie Jakes, obviously, as a, a great character on this. But, of course, you've also got Valentine Dial, who comes in right at the end. and yes. uh, uh, Absolutely brilliant, uh, brilliant actor. Been on uh, several of the goon shows as well, mm. um, usually playing some sort of evil type of character. Um uh, it's great to great to see that. But he wasn't in the episode early on, was he? No. He just comes on at the end. It seems he comes on at the end. It was quite quite strange, wasn't it? Yeah, he comes on at the end, and of course he was the person who committed the murder. Oh, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, it was quite strange because they introduced a brand new character at the end who was the murderer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it was quite clearly the duke and uh and yeah and he comes in and admits it and he, i think valentine dial was known for playing those sort of sinister characters because of his stature and his booming voice you know he plays uh the black guardian or something in doctor who later in the 70s and 80s he was the man in black on radio in the yes. 40s and 50s wasn't he and he's in fact he's in the second ever episode of hancock's half hour on the bbc um in the artist episode he was the guest star but he was in the entire episode not just the last the last inch of the last scene. Yes, I did it. I loved her. And no one will ever find out that I did it. But you, Hercules Pallet, oh! And I quite like when he, he sort of says, you're not June Whitfield, and you're not Laurence yeah. Olivier, um, which is a wonderful, bizarre twist in the joke of it being bad Amdram. My little fluff. You're not June Whitfield. And you're not Laurence Olivier. <laughs> They told me Lawrence Olivia was going to play that part, otherwise I would never have consented. Yes, I, I said that June Whitfield was going to play the Duchess. Well, June Whitfield was sort of sold at uh, lot three, I'm afraid. We've been brought here under false pretenses. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's that whole thing. There's even Tony even winks to the camera in one scene, doesn't he, in the show? So it's uh, it's quite different. Yeah, as you say, it feels it feels a very fun. It feels like mm. a very fun show, and I think all all of them have that feel of. Yeah, a, a real sense of fun and sort of farce and very much a sort of stage type production. Because, I mean, this this one ends up with a curtain going across as if it was on a stage. And there's a nice little dig at Jack Hilton at the end, isn't it? When the cast supposedly are giving him a present for uh, at yes. the end of the series. And we do hope that you're going to enjoy this little present that we've all got for you. It wasn't easy to get, oh, we do hope you enjoy. Uh, do you mind if I have a look? I'm curious, do you mind if I have a look? Thank you. And they say, oh, yes, we've all chipped into it. 
and he says, oh, yes, Hattie Jakes, five shillings, John Vere, one and six, Clive Dunn, two and six. This is very interesting here. Hattie Jakes, five shillings, Clive Dunn, two and six, John Vere, one and six, Jack Hilton, best wishes. <laughs> and uh, I think that's really good, yes. <laughs> Lovely, isn't it? And it's, I mean, I don't know what kind of piece of modern art that's meant to be, but uh, he doesn't. Tony's character is, uh, or Tony is playing himself, sort of. Uh, yes. He's not very impressed with it, is he? But then, you know, yeah. I don't think any of us would be. And I love the way he mouths to camera, but he doesn't actually say, What mm. is it? What is <laughs> yes. It? Just the whole show ends on that, that lovely moment, doesn't it? Yeah, so, so much different to a Hancock's half hour, but quite fun seeing this younger Hancock full of life and I wonder if the very first TV shows on the BBC were a little bit more like this in terms of their energy because they broke the fourth wall in the first ever TV episode on the BBC which is of course unfortunately lost. Yes because that was never ever recorded. Nope. And Sam Kidd in this was also in a Titfield Thunderbolt. Really? Yeah. Uncredited. Sam Kidd was in everything. Mm. He was in so many films. Yeah, I was reading his son's website about him recently. It's, uh, I got partway through and I ran out of time to read so many credits on there. He was a very busy actor. But I think, um, was Sam Kidd, he was in the fifth episode, wasn't he, on this rather than the Death of a Duchess one? No, he wasn't in this one. He was only in one episode. Yeah. And um, hopefully his, his son, Jonathan, is going to come to one of our events a bit later on. And uh, we're going to... Uh, show the episode that his dad is in so uh, that's something else that's coming up in the near future and we'll give details of that when when it's all uh, settled yes yes indeed and now it's time for our guest interview i recently spoke with lucy hancock i'm here with lucy hancock for listeners who don't know lucy is tony hancock's great niece and is also a director of the hancock family business roger hancock limited founded by her grandfather tony's brother roger Roger worked alongside Tony for many years and became his agent in 1961. Lucy became a director following the death of her father, Tim, in 2020, and the company still represents clients today. Uh, and Lucy, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? <laughs> very well indeed, thank you. Basically, I just firstly like to, to sort of discuss really what Tony means to you, because obviously you've, you've become involved in the family mm -hmm. business and uh, following the, the sad passing of your father. Yeah. Had you grown up sort of knowing of, of Tony very much or has it been a bit of a crash course in their family history of late? <laughs> it's been a bit of both. I mean, my dad was nine, I think, when Tony died or eight or something. So we were so far connected generationally. So it was never something that was... <laughs> forced on us always on TV in the family, but we were very aware of him and his impact. There was a statue of his head at the top of their, very macabre, um, <laughs> on the top of their staircase in their home in Brighton. Um, that always used to make my baby brother cry. So it, he was around, he, his pictures were everywhere. Um, but my grandpa never spoke of him that much because I think they had a bit of a sort of tougher relationship towards the end mm. well, I guess it was kind of sad for him to relate back but then yeah and then my dad sort of started to tell us a bit more when we were a bit older and guests could understand it a bit more mm. the only episode I'd ever watched was the blood donor and the radio ham 
Ah, yes. Mainly because my grandma was in one of them. So. Exactly, yes. Yeah, she's the uh, the landlady, isn't she? Will exactly. you turn that news down? I'm trying to get some sleep. <laughs> I actually think the first time I heard that was in the George Michael song over the Tony Hancock show. Yes, we were talking about that recently in the in a previous episode. So, um, yeah. I don't think I was aware of the song, so I didn't know that particular one. Yeah. But there's there's a few uh, samples of bits and pieces in different rock yeah, records absolutely. that have been released over the years. Yeah, I suppose with the uh, discovering the the family archive, mm. you know the uh, the big lockup full of uh, quite a number of um, treasured items, a bit of an Aladdin's cave, really. I suppose you'd say. Yeah, absolutely. We did not expect to stumble across all of that because I think it was stored away. I think just following Tony's death. So, mm. so long in Brighton. And then when my grandfather passed away, my grandma moved out into a smaller place. And this was apparently just sat in the loft. And then it was moved to a storage unit in Enfield. So we sort of stumbled across it. They've got a treasure trove of various objects from a big glamorous life of being a literary agent and an actress. Mm. But then this box was just sort of eyes lit up and how everything was so meticulously organized um, by episode, like everything labeled, like you couldn't even imagine. And I, I mean, going through the storage units anyway and realizing how much of a hoarder my grandparents were, hoarders my grandparents were, <laughs> um, my grandpa, it was, it was almost a good thing that he was such a hoarder yeah, because he just held onto everything that mundane slips of paper to some people, but, you know, clearly important to him. And it's been, because it's been stored away for so long, it's been kept in such good condition, which is just mm. brilliant. And we've got, we found his driving license and the infamous bear who definitely needs an operation. Yes, the giant, <laughs> six, what's his six foot teddy bear, I think it is, isn't yeah. it? Massive great thing. Weighs, weighs a ton. And he's got a sort of cut in his ear at the moment. So I think we need to stuff him a bit and sew him back up again before he... Uh, a bit of a stitching. Yeah, before he sees um, sees people again. Probably for the best. Well, you know, I, I yeah. keep watching that that uh, TV show, The Repair Shop, where people take all these treasured items yeah. that they once had from the 50s or something and they uh, do all, yeah. the, all the special repair. That's, uh, <laughs> that's always fascinating. Yeah, maybe I could get him on there. Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? I suppose one of the more fascinating things is is the archive of scripts of sort of some some of Tony's stand up routines, the notes mm-hmm. he give to the conductors of what music to play in and when, and and the many many scripts for the nineteen sixty three series and even yeah. earlier scripts than than that yeah. as well. And they're, they're in yeah. you know meticulous order with all of the contracts and everything involved. Yeah. A lot of it's uh, handwriting that's a little bit illegible. Yeah, we came across some of his ramblings of. Um, his sort of philosophical thoughts mm. and um, Tim and Martin said today that they could understand the words. They just didn't understand what he meant by them. Mm. So it's just so many like interesting artifacts that, you know, even I've known about it for a year, but I, I haven't even seen a quarter of it. There's just so much to go through. Yeah. Well, uh, several lifetimes worth, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. All the sheets of music, all the, the call sheets, what everyone was paid. <laughs> like, it's just very interesting to see it from that era as well. 
Yeah, it's, it's that sort of, you can sort of track how a production is made. Because a lot of the things that, you know, if you get a script book from a, a TV series or something, you get the script, you get the words, but you don't get all the detail of, you know, yeah. what the what the people are paid for the different roles, how they're exactly. contracted and overruns exactly. and things like that, which is a, quite a fascinating um, bundle of stuff. And, uh, of course, you also discovered... Well, I think the 56 series, I don't think any of that was in the family archive, was it? I think the, the later series was, but the, the 1956 is from the BFI, I think, isn't it? Yes, yes, correct. All the episodes that I found were all from the 1963 series. Mm, and that's yeah. why it was almost so crazy to stumble across them as well, because I, mm. you know, I, I'm only still discovering things about him and still learning. So it was just amazing to know that that's never been seen before. Exactly, yeah, and the uh, and of course the 1956 series has uh, just recently come out on DVD mid February, uh, orders being shipped out um, with uh, great speed by Kaleidoscope. Um, yeah. With the the series, obviously, it's one that's you know nev- never been rebroadcast really since 1956, and uh, it's the first time out on, on any kind of commercial release. Uh, why mm. were you keen to release the series, and are you very glad that that's that's happened as a, as a result of you know finding the archive and going through it all? Yeah, I hope that that was going to be the reaction. Of course, you never know, because as you said, it's been so long since the series was last aired. So it's amazing to see such a good, positive initial reaction from the fans. And hopefully that will, you know, continue with Tony's work as well. It just shows you that people still love him and he's still relevant. And, you know, his comedy is still being passed down through father to son and so on, which is just great. Exactly, and and it's like with the the supporting cast that he worked with in both in the Fifty Six series with Hattie and you know people like uh, Clive Dunn uh, and, yeah. and June Whitfield and all of those people yeah. who we recognise from so many other famous sitcoms. And I imagine you know being a, a similar age to myself that you'd have probably grown up seeing lots of carry-ons and things repeated on television. So Tony, Sid, Hattie, and all of that that sort of yeah. gang from the the Hancock Half Hour series are you know ingrained in the public consciousness as sort of archetypes really aren't they yeah totally yeah we um we grew up with well we holidayed i should say with clive dunn and his wife Scylla. Mm. they lived in a house in a beautiful villa in portugal so we saw them at, like every summer for so long and it was brilliant because i, I at that age i was about six or seven i didn't know the impact of clive dunn yeah so <laughs> It's just so weird to look back now, like a part of me wishes that I did appreciate it a bit more in the moment, but oh well. That's hindsight, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And yeah, Hattie Jakes introduced my grandparents. I think it was at the Players Room Mm. in Soho or something in London. Players Theatre or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. I think it's, yeah, some bar or something. I think it's a bar now. I don't know. My sister went there for a drink before she was pregnant. <laughs> of <course. laughs> and of course, the uh, the episode we're f- featuring and, and talking about in this particular podcast is the final episode of that 56 series. And I was uh, giving a little rewatch earlier today and it's, it's such a frenetic, um, there's a lot of energy to, to the sort of sketches and the, the fact that they sort of break the fourth wall quite a lot. Yeah. It sort of it seems, still seems quite quite current, you know. There's the occasional slightly more dated joke that doesn't scan so well now, but for the most part, it's it's, it's just a completely different kind of thing to the standard sitcom that you used to to seeing Tony in. Absolutely, 
And I mean, we, we both had the pleasure of seeing that, of course, at the reunion dinner a few months back. And yeah. I, I think they uh, they do very much gel together. And I think Hattie working with Tony yeah. in that show was, was as a, you know, as a result, she then was in Hancock's half hour subsequently. So it shows the whole gestation period, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. That was, that was really um, sort of, again, pleasant to see. You know, sometimes I'm, again, so separated from when my grandfather and when my dad were working in the industry yeah so again i'm sort of generationally quite attached from it so it's so Mm. nice to watch it all enjoy it all truly enjoy it all and not just sort of have to put on a face like oh god yeah that was a bit awkward (laughs) i don't get it yeah that's the thing isn't it yeah you can enjoy it as a as a viewer because it's um you know not not something you grew up watching on saturday every uh every week as a kid you know necessarily exactly but I, I think the shows do uh, do stand up quite well, and I think it's a fantastic release that uh, Kaleidoscope have put together. And you know, there will be more things to come in the future, which we will uh, be able to talk about more more publicly once uh, once everything's all all in order and the ducks are in a row. Yeah. With the the archive lock up and everything, it must be because you've had a few people. Uh, obviously, I think young Kevin McNally's been down to to see it in in awe and uh, everything as well. So that's been quite nice, I'd imagine. Yeah. Yes. Oh, it was amazing to have him there. Because again, mm. different generation. I grew up on Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mr. Gibbs was amazing. He's fantastic in that. He was great in yeah. Doctor Who recently, wasn't he, as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. One of the best things in it ever lately. Oh, he's amazing. He's such a lovely guy. So it's always nice to meet a celeb that's a normal person. Yeah. So, yeah, he came and visited and obviously was in total shock and awe. He absolutely loved it. Um, the Tony statue that I actually mentioned before arguably yeah. looks more like Kevin McNally than Tony Hancock. So that was quite funny. Yes, is that, is that the one that came down to the reunion dinner, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, it was. So uh, he... Um, he took a few snaps next to that, which was really funny. But yeah, he's he he. I think he'd love to take a week off and probably just go through everything meticulously. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. Maybe there's future projects for Mr. Kevin to get involved with. I'm, I'm sure there will be. I'm sure there will be. And then um, I suppose talking about your, your your father and your grandfather and that. I suppose they were didn't talk about Tony because the the pain of losing him was still quite a bit raw certainly for your grandfather it must have been yes but you know as you say it's a case of all said at the uh, dinner you know it's a case of you know yeah unfortunately Tony had his problems but you kind of focus on the positive as you would with anyone who's passed away you don't think of their final days you think of them in the peak of their life and joy de vivre and all of that exactly exactly I think obviously it was hard for my grandfather he I think it was the last few years of their relationship I'm not sure they were talking at all Mm. so it was obviously hard on him and you can see that from like I said how painstakingly lovingly he's filed everything away but it's nice now again with releasing the 1956 Mm. him at a time that you know a lot of people don't know him for as well to see him still so full of life and excited about his prospects and his career and you can almost see that in his performance as well i think yeah you definitely can it's uh, uh it, it strikes me as well because the 56 series he opened the first episode he opens with a tuxedo doing a sort of a bit of a like a bob monkhouse type of thing to get to camera which 
which wasn't what he's known for now. So you get yeah. to see a bit of him at the, the peak of his career doing a different kind of comedy, a much exactly. more physical comedy than, than the, the Hancock's Half Hour show was. Um, yeah. Although both employed, employed physicality and, the, you know, he had a, a wonderfully expressive face, didn't he? He was uh, he'd yeah. been a, a natural character actor if he hadn't been a, a, a comic, you know. Totally, totally. And that's what I think he would have loved to have got into that as well with mm. the Punch and Judy man, wasn't it? Wasn't that the one where you thought that would go further into more of a serious sort of career for him? Well, yeah, I mean, it's sort of almost the beginning steps of that, but I think people saw him as the comedian and he had to stay in that, that sort of, you know, typecast role. The same thing happened to Harry H. Corbett, of course, later on and from Steptoe and Son and things like that, yeah. to some extent or another. Yeah, it's almost part of, the, part of the sort of it's a blessing and a curse. You know, you're such a known face for playing such a known character that people struggle to view you as anything else. Yeah, it's the same, I suppose, with uh, the leads in soaps and things like that. People mistake exactly. them for the character and, uh, exactly. and stuff like that. And yeah, I spoke to Tim today as well about the um, show, The Lad Himself. Oh, yes, yes, that's on in April, isn't it? Yeah, I'm looking yeah. forward to Are that. Are you going to go to that? Yeah, I'm going to go along to that with me and Nick on the 20th, um, so yeah. that should be good. I'll see, I'll see you there then. <laughs> oh, I shall, we shall have a chinwag and a pint or something, I'm sure. Yeah, so. think, yeah. Well, thank you very much, Lucy. Thank you for your time. And uh, we look forward to speaking to you again in the near future. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Bye. <laughs> I mean, obviously, Clive Dunn was quite matey with Hancock in the early days, but I, I guess he must have been quite friendly with Roger and yeah. uh, probably with um, Roger's wife. Sorry, what's her name again? Um, Annie Leake. Annie Leake. Still alive. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. I wonder whether that was... Still going. Because it wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily have been Tim, would it, who would have been friends with uh, Clive Dunn. It would have been more like the grandparents. But I guess that's probably when, so. she, when she talks about family holidays, it might have been with her mum and dad and the grandparents or something. They all went, yeah, quite yeah, possibly. Yeah. yeah, it's quite yeah. possible. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, Hattie Jakes introduced Annie Leake and Roger uh, at the Players' Theatre, which is a rather lovely... Uh, little tying together of, of, of and you know all these act people in these sort of theatrical circles all know each other and uh, more so than you think i suppose then it's uh, probably about time for the score so uh, what do you think you're going to give that one martin well i really like this series it's very very different from hancock's half hour but i go to watch it for a different reason because i think it's just a fun mm. uh, frenetic action-packed series and i love the fact that it, it shows hancock in his more physical side to his comedy and if you watch the whole series you've got the beginning of episode two where he's he's having a massage which is incredibly physical comedy so of course it's it doesn't for me reach the quality of hancock's half hour and i don't think it, it, it would ever do that so i'm, I'm going to give it a score for uh, of seven because i think of the series this one is probably the strongest of the episodes it's the least sketch driven episode there is one other episode in the series that have got a number of sketches that are all linked um, and ending up with a spoof musical comedy but this is the one that's the most coherent episode if you like um, so it's a seven for me and i think it's got my favorite line of the series which is hancock saying this hair will hang a man and clive dunn says ah it ain't big enough but actually, I had already found this hair. And this hair will hang a man. Ain't long enough. 
I speak metaphorically. This hair will send a man to the gallows. <laughs> well, I, I think I'm going to agree with you on the scoring, Martin. I, I thought giving it a seven as well. Obviously, very different to Hancock's Half Hour. And, of course, many people listening to this podcast won't have even seen this. But it, it, it is... If you are a Hancock fan, you, you do need to buy the DVD set because it's it's great to have in a collection. It's a great series of shows. They are fun to watch. There's no doubt about it. But the, the problem when you start looking at other things that Hancock did, you, we always compare them to Hancock's Half Hour, where the bar is set so blooming high. And we've reviewed HHH programs on here before and given marks of 10 out of 10, unsurpassable. Um, so you, you can't compete with that. But bearing in mind it's sketch comedy and very different, it, it's it's great entertainment. I, I love watching all these old shows. And as, as a Hancock fan, I love seeing him do other things than, than the things we normally do. But I think the thing that stands out that's different more than anything is is the writing. It's very much a, a Sykes knockabout, if you like. I, as I said earlier, it looks like it's sort of stage orientated rather than tv and I, I think that's i think myself that's a fairly fair description of it i don't think the writing is as subtle as what gordon simpson did but having said that it comes across as a huge amount of fun a lot of it is very visual it's a what i call a typically live program and you know i i i still think that when you look at this you, you can't help thinking of Morecambe and Wise. I just think it, you know, it's that it's that sort of comedy, and I'm not quite sure how you define that, but it's great. But yeah, I, 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 I would, I would, gi- I would give it seven for the entertainment value, and I would certainly recommend that if anyone listening to this gets the DVD and um, and watches them, I, I, I think it's worth the money. I think they're great shows, but obviously very different to what we're used to in Hancock's Half Hour. Indeed. Yeah, I mean. Rather controversially, it's just not comparable to the Hancock's Half Hour that we all know and love and the writing of Ray and Allen. So I don't think I can score it um, because I don't think it's on that level at all. I don't think it's on the same wavelength. I think it's a completely different show. It is. It has, as Tim said, it has got that pantomime feel to it. I do think it's great fun and I really enjoyed watching it, but... It's, it was completely alien to me until I started watching it um, today. Yeah. I don't think I can score it as if I, score, if I, so I was scoring a, a Hancock's Half Hour episode. I just don't think I can. Because I don't want dis, to disgrace it by giving it a low score. Because I don't think I would give it a low score anyway. Mm. But if I give it a 7 or a 6, then I feel like I'm comparing it to uh, Ray and Allen's writing, which I think for me is just on a different level. I think it, it does feel very ad-libbed. And um, it's enjoyable. It's a good watch, but it's not. If I was watching this before I watched Hancock's Half Hour, maybe I wouldn't have uh, watched Hancock's Half Hour. Yeah, sort of poles apart, aren't they? Yeah, they are. They're completely different shows for me. I mean, mm. for the sake of argument's sake, I'll give it a six. Just so we have got a <laughs> lot of sake. But well, yeah. You see, I think I think I'm going to sort of disagree with you all a little bit. I think with this particular episode of the tony hancock show i mean it's it's one of the ones that certainly we've all seen the most recently because obviously uh, this one prior to the recent releases and things like that we'd only had a couple of short clips from it maybe seen had about nine minutes of the show that i'd seen before and it tantalized me with with interest 
And and I think this one overall from that series, I think is the, the best one, as Martin says. It's got one long sketch, which is two thirds of the episode. And that, that really makes a big difference. I, I think that this one, I'd have to give it a nine just because of the frenetic energy, the youthful Hancock and all the connections that it then subsequently made that improved Hancock's half hour for the better. And, and you know, the careers of all involved. It's lovely to see that sort of gestation period in this show. And it is quite different, admittedly. You know, I don't think I can quite compare it, like James said, to a, a sitcom Hancock, but it's a it's a blooming good show and it's uh, tickles my fancy, certainly. So nine from me. See, I feel bad now. Oh, well, <laughs> it's a different show, though, isn't it? We've, bad we've, James, you know, bad it's, James. It's a, but it's a fantastic. You can see the, the characters mm. are forming. Hattie Jakes is absolutely phenomenal. I think the, yeah. the, um, the chemistry between her and Hancock is... It's brilliant, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. it's sort of it's immediately there, isn't it? Mm. And you can imagine mm. that Ray and Alan must have been watching mm. that, thinking there's there's mm. a lot to be work, there's a lot to work with here. Well, it's yeah. interesting. We, we we played this episode at our annual dinner last year, didn't we? Yes. And uh, all the society members there sitting around watching this. I mean, everyone I think thoroughly enjoyed it, and you know, laughter all, all around the room. Perhaps it helps that you see it in a group or something, but it's, um, it, cer- it certainly went down very well at, at the annual dinner, no doubt about it. Exactly, yeah. So I suppose an average of seven pints, that's uh, a little bit more than an armful, isn't it? And I think that's about it this week, so uh, if you want to take it away, Tim. Why not join the Tony Hancock Appreciation Society today? You can find us at tonyhancock.org.uk for all the information you need on how to join. For just £13 a year, you'll have access to the members area of our website and receive four magazines a year by email packed with information on Tony, his shows and archive material. Members also get a digital-only bonus pages supplement every quarter, plus occasional special editions on a single theme. Or you can have printed copies of the missing page posted to your door for £16 in the UK or £26 worldwide. We're a friendly and welcoming bunch, so please do join. We have reunion events with archive displays and occasional Zoom quiz nights. Please get in touch. We love questions and conundrums, compliments and feedback. To do so is very easy. Send your emails to podcast at tonyhancock.org.uk. Keep an eye on our Twitter accounts for the latest news on the podcast and all things Tony Hancock. We've got three Twitter accounts. We've got East Team Lad, Tony Hancock Appreciation Society, and very nearly an armful. In the next episode, we'll be looking at the Lost Hancock's Half Hour episode, The New Neighbour. This was originally a radio episode that Gorton and Simpson adapted for TV. We'll be reviewing the missing Hancock's remakes of both the radio and television versions with their star, our very special guest, Kevin McNally. For now, that's very nearly an awful, so I'll say ta-ta. It's sayonara from me. Chickadee Snitch. And this is GLK London signing off for a quick cough and a drag. You're not Jim Whitfield either, are you? (laughs) (laughs) And you're not Laurence Olivier. So I'm told. This has been an official podcast of the Tony Hancock Appreciation Society. Unfortunately, it was not written by Alan Simpson and Ray Gordon, whoever they are. The announcer was me, Robin Sebastian, currently appearing in the saloon bar of the Hendon Racket. Lovely, yes, that was a good one. Another good one, Ronnie. Another good one, Ronnie. <laughs> Watch out, the producer's coming. <laughs>